Um, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, this is, we've been in a series that we've called Road and Rubber, and asking the question, what does prayer look like in real life? What does it look like in real life for me to talk to God? I feel like you guys are so far away now. I mean, you need to come down here. We'll try not to do that. <laughs> okay. Um, what does prayer look like in real life? And uh, we've been doing that in a couple of different ways, and this is actually the last chapter in our, in our story, in our series together. So if you're a guest with us this morning and it's the first time you're hearing any of this, then welcome. Um, this actually might be the better one to like drop in on because I'm going to try and summarize everything that we've talked about so far. And so hopefully by the end of it, it'll make sense and you'll have eight weeks worth of information in one week. So <laughs> uh, hopefully that will be helpful. Um, but the way that we've been going about this and exploring this is, is by looking at two books that seem like they probably don't have much to do together. We, we look to the Bible for, uh, to understand how God wants us to operate in the world. And there's two books, two chapters in that uh, story that <laughs> there's, two, uh, there's two books in the Bible that seem like they're contradictory. And the first one is the story of a woman named Esther. And the reason, uh, and the interesting thing about Esther is it's a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God or prayer at all. And that sounds a whole lot like my real life with the people that I hang out with. Like, it's like, they're not thinking about God. They're not thinking about like, oh, well, maybe you should pray about this. They're just like, no, I need you to get this job done. I don't care how, what it takes. You got to get it done. Um, or they're, they're bill collectors. Or, I don't care what happened in your life. Like, the bill was due two weeks ago. Like, make sure this gets happened. Like, they don't, they're, not, they're not driving me to talk to God, and that's the book of Esther. And then there's this other book called the book of Psalms, and it's just so, like, pie in the sky, up in the air, like, what, I, let, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead, actually. Uh, let me look at, 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 verse, at, at Psalm 118 is where we're going to be today. And we get to verses like this, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I'm like, God, do you know what kind of week I had this week? You're going to start there? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good? Like, I, I don't know that it necessarily feels like that. Like, I had a lot of aches and pains to get here this morning. And, and maybe I just need to warm up to the idea that you're good and that maybe I should be thankful. So we get this book of the Psalms that kind of jumps right into the heavenly stuff, and we got this book of Esther that's just dealing with life in, in the real world, and we're trying to bring these two things together. So that's what we've done. And I've, I've just summarized the book of Esther for us as we've gone through it, and, and we're in the last two chapters. And so this takes place, the story takes place in the kingdom of Persia, which was after Babylon and before uh, Rome got started. The Greeks are kind of contemporary, like they're doing a bunch of stuff in Athens. Like that's where we are in history. And the king at the time is Xerxes or Ahasuerus, depending on how you want to spell his name. Um, but but he's the king at the time, and he gets in a drunken rage one day in this big party that he's showing everybody how great he is, and, he, and his wife doesn't listen to him, so he gets rid of her. And then he goes off to battle and loses a couple battles, and when he comes home, he's like, man, I wish I had a queen around. And so he holds this big beauty contest, and um, whoever's the most beautiful woman and whoever's the most pleasing woman in, in the skills of the harem is the woman who's going to become the queen. And so that's how we're introduced to Esther. She's a young girl. She, she is of Jewish descent, um, but she's raised by her cousin because her parents had died at some point along the way. She's raised by her cousin Mordecai. And we don't know much about this young girl except that she shows up in this beauty contest. 
And her, her cousin Mordecai says, well, I can't save you from this contest, but just keep it on the DL. Just keep it secret that you're, you're a Jew, that you come from a Jewish family. Um, and, and maybe things will go okay for you. So we don't know how she felt about being in the beauty contest. We don't know how she felt about being in the harem. Um, but we know that she made an impression on the king in the time that she had with him, and he elevated her to be the next queen, which you think would be great. And so she's living in the palace, and, and, and her cousin Mordecai, who kind of raised her, he keeps stopping by, and he hangs out at the king's gate to make sure that everything's going okay with Esther and to try to hear word about what's going on. Um, and he accidentally one time saved the king's life. It wasn't really a big deal, and the king kind of forgot about it too. Um, but but as, as Mordecai's hanging around, he, he makes some enemies with a guy named Haman. Um, and Haman was a lot like the king. He liked people to realize how great and wonderful he was. And so Haman had a law passed so that anytime he walked into a room, everybody in the room had to bow to him and tell him how great he was. And Mordecai's like, I ain't playing that game. Like, I... I I'm a, I'm a Jew, we don't worship false gods, we don't worship false idols, and you clearly are not a god, so I'm, I'm not bowing to you. And so Haman's the kind of guy who has everybody in the room bowing to him except for one dude, and he's just fixated on the one guy who won't listen. And in order to get even, uh, he's a little bit of a maximalist, he likes to take things to the extreme. In order to get even with Mordecai, he says, you know what? I'm going to kill all the Jews. Like, I, I don't, I'm not just going to take care of Mordecai. Like, that's not enough for me. I'm going to make sure him and his family and his cousins and his distant, distant second related, once removed, twice removed, I'm going to make sure all of them are just dead because he won't bow down to me. So Mordecai gets news of this, and he's a little bit upset. And what's fascinating is you're reading the story, you think like, okay, so there's this now this proclamation that Haman has put together and has signed with the king's signet that, that on a certain day of the year, anybody who wants to can just go out and kill Jews, and they can take all their stuff. And you would think like, that's kind of a big deal law. You would see that on your Twitter feed when you woke up, wouldn't you? Like Facebook would be in an uproar about that kind of thing. And Mordecai gets it, and he's, he's distraught, and he's upset, and he, he changes his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, and, and he's just mourning, weeping, upset about all this. And all Esther hears is, Mordecai's going crazy. Like, check your cousin. See, see what's going on with him. And so Esther sends word, like, hey, Mordecai, what's going on? Like, that, isn't that astonishing? She's in the palace and is so separated from everything that's happening in the kingdom, she doesn't even know that there's this genocidal law that's been put on the books that people are upset about. But what she does know is that Mordecai's distressed, and so they go back and forth, and, and Mordecai says, hey, my life has been pretty difficult. I feel like I've always been at the wrong place at the wrong time. But maybe, maybe, Esther, for once in my life, you've been put in the right place at the right time to help your people. And you've kept it a secret that you're a Jew, but don't think that somebody hadn't figured it out. So will you stand up for your people? Well, the way that it worked, all this entourage, like if she, if she went into the king's room without being summoned, like it was a problem. Her life was on the line. And so they fasted for a couple of days and she walked in. And it was, you know, am I going to die here today for walking into this room without, without an invitation? Um, and the king was like, hey, like, Esther, good to see you. I forgot. I forgot why I was married. That's crazy. Like, why don't you come in and tell me what you need? And she's like, hey, uh, I'm, 
she didn't say this, but she said, I've been fasting for three days. Like, let's, let's have a meal tonight. Let's, let, let me cook you dinner. And so she cooks him dinner, and he's like, all right, so now we've had dinner. Like, tell me what it is that you want. She's like, actually, like, let's do dinner again tomorrow, and like, you can come, and you can bring Haman, and we'll have, we'll have another nice dinner. So they have another nice dinner, and at the dinner, the king's like, all right, no, tell me what it is that you want. She says, well, I'd, hate to bother you. <laughs> like I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even ask if it was just like slavery or something like that, but my people are going to die. Like somebody's, got, somebody's put out a law that now anybody who wants to on this certain day of the year can just walk up and kill a Jew and take all of his stuff. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm a Jew and that's my family and that's me. And like if people are taking my stuff, like I'm in your palace, like you got to understand there's going to be, and, and the king, you know, he's had a couple of beers and, and so he's like, who did this? Who signed this law? Like, how would they get a hold of my signet ring? And she's like, well, actually, it was, it was Haman. He's at the table here with us. And he's like, oh, my gosh. And he storms off, and Haman falls on Esther's lap, and he's like, please save me, please save me. And she's like, uh, what do you mean save you? Like, you're the one who's trying to kill me and all my people. And the king comes back in, and he's laying across her lap, and he's like, is he going to assault? Is he going to kill her in my own palace right now? And they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, like, he just set up some, he just set up a, um, a gallows, yes, thank you. He set up a gallows to hang Mordecai, the guy who saved your life. He was going to kill him this morning, and that didn't work out. So maybe you should hang him on the gallows that he built for this other guy. And King's like, that sounds like a great idea. And he dies. So the enemy is taken care of. Haman's gone. But there's this, this small feature about Persian law. This is where the details are sometimes important. In Persia, when the king writes a law and he signs it with his signet ring, it's permanent. It cannot be undone. So he has signed into law this act, which makes it legal for anybody who wants to to go up to a Jew's house, kill them, and take their stuff on this certain day. And so Esther says, hey, all right, so we've gotten care of, taken care of Haman, like justice has been served, and yet we still have this law in the books that is like we're in danger here. What can we do? Well, the king's like, all right, I don't, know. I, I don't really know. Like, Mordecai, you seem like the kind of guy who has things figured out. Like, why don't you put the work on it? He gives Mordecai all these promotions and makes him, you know, uh, actually puts him in Haman's place, which is, you know, fascinating if we're talking about justice. Um, and so Mordecai's like, all right, all right, I got, a, I got a plan. We've made it legal for people to kill Jews. Let's make another law that makes it legal for Jews to defend themselves. And that if you attack a Jew and he kills you in self-defense, then, then the Jews can take your stuff. So, so, so get, get what I'm saying. So like, it's legal for somebody to come and kill a Jew and take their stuff. But now we have another law that says if you try to attack a Jew and kill him, he is legally allowed to defend himself and kill you. And if you have attacked him unprovoked in order to get his stuff and he kills you in the process, then he can take your stuff as retribution. Okay. So that law gets signed, but now we're in chapters 9 and 10, and we've just been waiting for months and months and months because all of this nonsense is tied to a particular day on the calendar. And I don't know if you're like, your life is like my life, but it seems like the older I get, the more life is about waiting. And so for us, we're just like, okay, chapter 8, chapter 9. But for them, it's like chapter 8, we've got a solution to this, but we've got months to wait. We've got to figure, like, what if this doesn't work? What if we're overpowered? What if God doesn't help us? Like, with all these questions. And so when we get into chapters 9 and 10, which is really what I wanted to summarize today, but I've gone over all of it for you, so now we're all up to speed, it comes the day. 
And the Jews all get together. They're like, hey, this is, this is going to be the best thing for us is if we rally together. So they all got together in their own little camps and they protected themselves. And so when people came, and this is what is crazy to me, people, people came to kill them. They know about both of these laws and people came to attack them anyway. And so we, when we talk about people denying the Holocaust and, and, and all of those kinds of things, like I just want to point out, it's not new for people to hate Jews for no reason. Like, there's something that, that, that God has put in his chosen people that, that the enemy wants to destroy, and this is not new to history. And so there's both of these laws on the books, but people still come against them, and the Jews fight. They fight back, and they win. Like, there aren't any Jews who die, but everybody who comes against the Jewish family is destroyed. And here's where your, your stereotypes are going to get blown up. The Jews have the legal right to steal all their stuff, and they don't. I, I know we have some stereotypes that, about people of that uh, descend, descendancy. Like, I want you to understand, they had the legal right to pillage and take all of the things from their house, and they killed the people who were defending them and did not take anything from them. So do with your stereotypes what you will. I just want to point to you how the scripture portrays these people. And I want to point, point out to you that they are God's chosen people and that he is not finished with them and that a lot of what God is going to do in the end times in Revelation is, uh, is related to what he's going to do with them. I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if the church gets zapped out and God's still working on the world, he ain't working with us. So that's another thing. But, but in 9 and 10... In 9 and 10, the Jews defend themselves. They destroy the people who've come against them, and they, they just leave the stuff, like, y'all sort it out. I don't want any of the inheritance, and, and fight against them. And then it, it, it escalates a little bit because now the people who are in the capital city, like, they're upset. Like, we wanted to destroy the Jews, and now we didn't get to destroy the Jews. They've destroyed us. And so Esther becomes concerned, like, maybe this isn't over yet. And, and so she comes to the king again. So now she's like, she doesn't even care. I don't even think she's fasting anymore. She just walks in like, hey, so who's in charge? I don't know. <clears throat> Maybe that's your marriage too. <laughs> it might just be mine. <laughs> so she just walks in and says, hey, King, can you, can you just extend this for another day? I'm concerned that people are going to take the law into their own hands and that they're going to continue to try to attack Jews on the, on the day following the day that's actually been appointed. And so in, in the capital city, will you extend it a day? And he does. And that's when Haman's sons get involved. And Haman's sons, they, they die too. So we have justice all around. Um, so we get rid of Haman. We get rid of his sons. Everybody who's against the Jews and God's people is destroyed. And so they then set up a celebration. Um, they call it Purim. Um, and there's something that they still will do today. Um, if, you, if you know uh, practicing uh, Jews, they'll, they'll still celebrate Purim. And this is where the festival comes from. They tell this story, and it's so funny. If you, if you can find it on YouTube, get, find a video of Jewish people reading the book of Esther at Purim because every time they say the name Haman, they go, <laughs> like, all the way through the story, every time Haman's name, <laughs> they spit on his name. It's hilarious. But this is something that they continue to tell. This is something that has stayed established. This is a celebration of, hey, God took care of us. And I've already highlighted the fact that in this book, as you're reading it, as you're familiar with the text, you realize God doesn't show up here. 
There, there is no angel of the Lord moment where, where Esther's praying and, and an angel shows up in her bedroom and says, everything will be fine. I shall take care of this. The angel of the Lord is on your side. Who can stand against you? Which is what we've read and based on New Testament passages, like we're okay with that. But like that doesn't happen. Sometimes I'm afraid that, that we read stories in the Bible about really uh, interesting transitional times in, in history when God's very active and engaged in sending angels and showing up in people's dreams and things like that. And we think, that should be my life. I just want to highlight that God is working and sets up an eternal festival that's, that they're going to keep throughout eternity without ever showing up with an angel and without ever explicitly talking to somebody. Like, if you feel like your life is too normal, I just encourage you, like, most of the Bible is normal people doing normal things, and God doesn't necessarily show up in, in these big, magnificent ways to do stuff. He just helps people take the next step. The next step. The next step. So as we come to Psalm 118, because I do want to get there as a conclusion to what we have been studying in, um, in Esther. When we read in Psalm 118, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. I want you, I want you to understand like when we come to those verses, we together collectively have been digging through eight weeks of normal stuff Eight weeks of where is God, eight weeks of what is God doing, eight weeks of will God show up, eight weeks of people are backstabbing and lying against me, eight weeks of I've been accused against, I've been accused wrongfully and people are going to destroy me and God, will you please just wake up and do something about all of this? And there are eight weeks of crying out to God and eight weeks of like, God, I thought you were on my side and eight weeks of God, I thought you said that I could trust you, but maybe I couldn't. And when we get to 118 and it says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, we now have made the turn where not only have we set up a plan and we're asking God to, to work in it, now he has done it and he has delivered his people. And so now we can turn and say, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. So if, if I'm coming at this and you're like, I'm not there yet. I'm not there to, I'm not at a place where I'm ready to give thanks. Like we're coming into this week and like, yeah, I got the turkey lined up. It's going to be great, I guess, but I got to deal with these family and they're going to be in my house and there's just a thing. Like if, if you're not ready yet, no, if you're not ready yet to give thanks, I just want to acknowledge that we've spent a lot of time going through and dealing with real life. And there are times where we get to a place of deliverance, a place where God has done something in us, and our first, our first inclination is, okay, God, what's next? Okay, God, you got me out of this one, now what? Like, don't you know the next thing is going to come up? Like, God, you're supposed to be doing stuff for me. And we get to a place where God has done something, and we don't even, we don't even stop. We don't even think about it. 
We literally have to put a day on the calendar and get everybody else to agree like we're all going to stop and be grateful for one day out of the year in order for us to remember to do it. And so as we come to the Psalms and they say, hey, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Like, let's do that. Hey, he has been faithful. He has been kind. He has given you a lot of good things. He's provided for a lot of your needs and things that we don't even really think about. Like one of the things that I, that boggles my mind, or not boggles my mind, but when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, God, thanks for that. It's like we have like paved roads to drive our nice cars on. Um, and yeah, we pay taxes and those kind of things, but like we, they're just here. And they've been there as long as I've been here. I've never known a world without interstates. Right? And that's just a feature of being born in the time that we were born in and the place that we were born in and the, and the history of the country that we're living in that we have the blessing of these paved roads. And that is not true for everybody. There's sometimes where if you, like, if people want to go and preach the gospel to people, they got to take an airplane. And the airplane's got to drop them off like 30 miles away. And then they got to trek through a jungle, like in a Jeep that's busted down, and they're afraid that the Jeep's going to, like, go into the swamp. And, like, it's just... But we just have roads. Like... We paved Florida. I don't know if you know this, but like right down there, you've got a nice straight road going through the forest right there. If you look on either side, it's just swamp. I don't know why there is a road through the middle of the swamp, but we figured out how to do it and we drive it every day and we don't ever think about it. So give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Um, I want to focus in on steadfast love. Um, the, the, the Hebrew, and I don't typically talk about this, but this is actually super important. So the Bible was originally written in, in a couple of different languages. It was originally written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And in the Hebrew that these, that these verses were actually written in, uh, the word here that's translated steadfast love is chesed. You, you're going to have to hock a for this. But I, I'd like for you to try. Can you guys say chesed? Chesed. <clears throat> this is maybe, this is maybe the most theologically significant verse in the Old Testament or theologically significant vocabulary word in the Old Testament um, for how God relates with us. Chesed. And so as I read, like if you, you'll hear me sometimes when it comes up to the Lord, I'll put Yahweh in there. Sometimes when I come up to steadfast love, I'll put chesed in there just to let you know that this is the word that we're talking about. Because in the English Standard Version, which is what the Blue Bibles and the Story Bibles are, they will always translate chesed, steadfast love, which helps you to know like steadfast love is chesed. Um, in, the, in the New American Standard, they have a, a different word, but there, there's some translations, and this one is one of them, where they'll always translate that word in a particular way so that you know what it is. Why do you care? Chesed is the vow God makes on his own character to take care of us. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, when Abram, and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these things for you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a big, uh, I'm going to give you a bunch of kids. I'm going to give you a land, and all, everybody's going to be blessed through you. He cuts a covenant with him. He makes a promise, but Abram's asleep. Abram, Abram gets the benefit of writing a contract without, without having to sign his name to it. God not only signs the con makes the contract, he signs it with both signatures. 
That is chesed. He not only gives us, he not only gives us the benefit of being in relationship with him, but he makes it dependent upon himself. Abram, Abram's the beneficiary of the covenant, but he's not the one liable to break it. I'm going to do this. God says, I'm going to do this, and you can take that to the bank. I actually think that this is what he's doing with the Ten Commandments as well. Um, because you know that the Ten Commandments were written on two tablets, right? And in every one that you've ever seen in America, there's four on this one and six on that one, or five and five. They're like Roman numerals, which, you know, is frustrating anyway because it would have been in Hebrew, not Roman. But it's <coughs> another joke. <coughs> But in, in God, God gives the Ten Commandments on two tablets to Israel and says, y'all keep these. I don't think that it was half and half. I think it was two copies of the same document. I think he said, I'm going to give you these commandments, which begin with, I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you out of Egypt. And then the Ten Commandments. He, I think he gives both copies of the, of the, of the um, contract to Israel and says, I don't need my copy. I've got it written here. That's chesed. That's, that's it's, it's not a one-for-one one example, but it's, it's a mother's love. Like, you don't have to do anything for your mom to love you. She just does. And like, you can be super dumb. And you can do things that will hurt her. And you can do things that will hurt your family. And your mom still loves you. Some of this chesed is, is in her, naturally. Is ref- something I, I would say is reflected to the image of God. That's a, a whole different conversation. All that to say, this steadfast love endures forever. God says, I promise to you, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm the one who's going to do all the work. I'm just asking you to show up. Like, Abram was asleep. <laughs> he says, I'm going to do this with you. You're not really going to whatever. Like, you're not going to be a part of this. It's not dependent on whether or not you can obey. This is just like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to use you. And it's not because you earned it, because you're just kind of a goofy dude. But it's because I'm God, and I've chosen to do this. And I want to bless the world, and I'm going to bless the world through you. And you don't get a say in it. I'm just going to do it. That's chesed. God is trustworthy because of this, like, this steadfast love. See, when I say steadfast love, you think love like, like ooey-gooey, like hearts, and like I feel all these things for you, um, and, and, and romantic type of love. When God says hesed, when he says steadfast love, he's not talking about the way he feels about you on any given day. He's talking about the commitments he has made to you. This is why in a marriage ceremony, the thing that is exchanged are not ooey-gooey feelings, they are vows. Because love is based upon a commitment to the other person's best interest. And chesed is God's commitment to his people. So, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel, the whole nation, let everybody in the nation of Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron, the priests, the people who were supposed to be intermediaries between the Israel and God, let those people say, his chesed endures forever. Then let all those who fear the Lord, everybody who knows what he's done in history, everybody who trusts him and comes to him in, in faith, let those people say, 
His steadfast love endures forever. Hey, by the way, that's you. If you fear the Lord this morning, like let those people say, His steadfast love endures forever. So let those who fear the Lord say, Let those who fear the Lord say, All right, now try it with chesed, because that'll be fun. <laughs> Let those who fear the Lord say, His chesed endures forever. It's his, it's his promise to himself. So that's where this psalm starts, right? And it seems like really pie in the sky. It took me a lot to like, um, try and parse it down and bring it down so we can kind of get a grasp on what it is, but it's, it's really, really important. Um, let's look at the problem because there were some problems here. Look with me at Psalm 118 and verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was failing but the Lord, falling, so, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So as the psalmist is writing here, he, he has in mind this picture of just being surrounded and, and being overwhelmed. Um, he says his enemies are coming against him like a swarm of bees. Um, and, and I don't know if you've ever had experience with bees before, but they're not, not pleasant. Um, I can remember one time um, I was in the woods uh, playing with with my friends and we had climbed up in this tree and me being me being the brilliant one like i'm like all right cool and this tree had kind of bent like this which what made the arc made it possible for me to even climb up it but like this part at the end had died and the tree kept growing vertically but like this part had been cut off you've seen this before and i i, I guess had never seen it before because i didn't know what that meant and so i climb out and i'm like oh cool we've got like a diving board up here and so i get up onto this part and i like I'm like, oh, look, here it's cracking. Isn't that cool? And boom, and I fell out of the tree because I'm a dummy. <clears throat> but what I didn't know is that there was a piece of plywood that had been laid in the woods there. I don't know why. Um, and underneath this piece of plywood, there had been a bunch of yellow jackets that had built their nest. And so I landed on top of what I thought were leaves, but it actually was a piece of plywood that was sitting on top of a yellow jacket's nest, and they did not like me knocking on their door. And so they come out and start to swarm me, and I just take off running. Like, I don't even know what's happening, but I just take off running, and they're stinging me, and my ears all swole up, and, and, and it, was, it was, do you remember this? Okay. <laughs> it was not pleasant. Like, nobody wants to be surrounded by bees, because the thing about bees is, like, you, you can kill one, and there's just a thousand more coming. Like, I can handle one bee. I'm not afraid of one bee. I've got some guys at work that are terrified of one bee. I'm like, guys, 
It's 1B. We'll be, out, we'll be out trimming hedges, and 1B will come out, and they'll be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I ain't, I ain't about to start nothing. It's like, come on, man, it's a B. Anyway, when you have a swarm of them, though, is a different story. And so the psalmist is saying, I'm surrounded by my enemies like a swarm of bees. They went out like fire among thorns. Like, okay, so you're running through a briar patch that's caught on fire. That's what it's like. <laughs> like, that's, that's vivid imagery. I think none of us has problem imagining what is happening here, right? He's saying, I was in that situation, and I called out to Yahweh, and Yahweh delivered me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. God is my salvation. He's our salvation. He's saying, look, like, there's, there's all these things going on. And he's not saying that it was easy. Did you see how the verses ended? He said, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. He said, look, he has let some things happen in my life that were definitely unpleasant. He's disciplined me severely, and I've grown because of it, but he didn't let me die. He dragged me through some stuff, but he walked with me through the valley of the shadow of death. God is our salvation. So glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. So, so if that is true, I'm going to stop and I'm going to sing about it a little bit. I'm going to say, hey God, you know what? You have been really good to me and you have delivered me and you have done, like I'm going to stop everything that's going on in my life and just be thankful for what God has done because God is our salvation. Here's, here's something that is very close to my heart and has come up a couple of times this week so I want to make sure that I say it. I'm glad that you're in, with grace this morning and, and, I, and I'm glad that God has moved things around for us to be here in this community and to be able to, to gather together and worship here. But if you come to grace and you think, man, Michael's so great, or man, I really love the way that he talks, or man, like, I love how the people take care of me. If, if we as a church become the thing that you put your trust in, then we have failed. Our job is to point you to God. Grace Church is not your salvation. Michael is not your salvation. God is our salvation. I'm not the one who's going to go into a swarm of bees with you. But God is our salvation. Open to me the gates of righteousness, in verse 19, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. So the scene shifts here. I'm going back into Jerusalem. I'm walking in and I'm walking through the gates. Like God has done stuff for me out in my real life and now I'm coming in to worship him and I'm not gonna keep quiet about the things that, he done, that he's done for me. I'm going to tell people what has happened. So open the doors. I'm coming in and I got some praising to do. Let me tell you, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my my salvation the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this is the lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes this is the day that the lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it save us we pray O lord O lord we pray give us success blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord we bless you from the house of the lord the lord is god and he has made his light to shine upon us
So bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns on the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his chesed endures forever. There's a strange turn here um, where he starts talking about rocks. And I don't think it's by accident because we're, we're talking about like, okay, the army surrounded me and then I was delivered and now I'm going to give some thanks. I'm going to go in. I'm going to praise God for what he's doing. But all of this praise is actually, even from this standpoint here in Psalm 118, is actually still pointing forward to something, a salvation that he has not yet understood. He says, the stone that the builders rejected uh, has become the chief cornerstone. And we read in First Peter that that was what he was, talk, he was talking about Jesus in this, that we, we find these verses in the New Testament applied to Jesus. So there's a couple of things that I learned in February that I'd like to share with you because I think they're important and I think it will help you to understand this, these verses. Um, uh, as I grew up, I, I come to understand that Jesus was called a carpenter. And so I imagined him doing like wood shavings and things like that. And you know, that's the picture of Jesus that I had in my head, um, building tables and things of that nature. Um, the word itself is builder, construction worker. And, and one of the things that struck me when somebody pointed out to me, because I'm kind of slow, but when somebody pointed it out to me when we were walking around in Israel, like, what is it that they build with there? Stones. So, so when the Bible says that Jesus was a builder, I'm not sure that he was necessarily a carpenter because there aren't really a lot of trees in Israel. What they build with are stones. And there's lots of those. Like, everywhere you look, there's stones. I'm like, I don't even know how they planted these plants in the ground because I've seen what the dirt looks like. They must bring the dirt from somewhere else to make things grow. But, like, the whole of it is, is, is these rocks. And so you get a big pile of rocks, and you're like, I want to build something with this. And so you start sorting through the rocks. And it's a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle. And then you've got to get the rocks to fit together in the right way. And if you're building with rocks, like, the thing you've got to do is you've got to start the right way. Um, I, did, I did work for a summer with a brick mason. And I was like, hey, I can get this wall started and you can finish it. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, you can do the stuff later. I need to start this wall. And I, I was like, what do you mean? You know, he said, if you, if you start this wall and it's wrong, the whole thing's going to be terrible. Like, it's not going to stand. He said, I can't trust you to do the first layer of this. I, you can do the other stuff. That's not so as important as long as you go off the first one. But if the first one's not set right, the wall won't stand. And it's the same, same principle, like building principles never change. Um, and so as you're building stuff with all of these random rocks that you just kind of dug up out of the field, you've got to find one that's the right fit and the right shape in order to start your wall. And that would, might be what we'd call the cornerstone. That's the one that you start with. But if you're going through a pile and you're like, no, this one won't work, and you chuck it to the side, like that's a stone that the builders have rejected. But the word here is that the stone that the builders rejected have become the chief cornerstone. And I just think it's fascinating that Jesus was a builder. I think it's very likely that he was a construction worker uh, near and around Nazareth. Um, and, and he would work with stones. And he was a builder who would reject cornerstones. And I just wonder how he interacted with that in his day-to-day -day life. It'll be fun to ask him one day. Um, but he himself is the chief cornerstone. He, he comes to the Jewish people and says, hey, look, I'm, I'm your salvation. I'm, I'm your king. And they say, yeah, no, you're not. And, and it, it, it's with irony that the inscription above the cross is king of the Jews. 
It's, it's true, but they didn't mean it. In fact, the Jews said, hey, take that down. That's, that's disrespectful to us. And the Romans said, no, it's a good joke. I like it. And thus, God's truth is declared, whether people want it to be or not, that Jesus was the king of the Jews. He was rejected by those he came to save, and yet that stone became the chief cornerstone on which everything is built. There's one more picture I'd like to share with you just to help you to, to grasp this. Um, this is not my picture, um, but this is a picture from inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, and it, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it to you, um, except to say that it's a really big and fancy church that like Catholics like to do. Um, and when I was there, this room was full of people, so I couldn't have gotten this picture uh, to save my life. This room was just full of people. Um, and if you look here, you've got these two glass boxes here, right? You see those? Those are glass cases. Those glass cases are sitting over top of just the natural rock of the mountain. So it, they've built this building around on top of this mountain, and they've just left this raw stone here. But this is, but they think that this, this, the backside of this building shared a wall with the ancient wall, and as best as they can guess, these are the rocks that, that, that the um, crucifixion took place on. So this is where the cross stood. This is where Jesus is, these are the rocks that Jesus' blood would have spilt onto. And when you come into this room, you can see this, um, this box here. Uh, you can pray there, but if you're going to pray there, you don't stand. Like, you kneel and get down underneath it. Uh, if you're going to pray there, like, they want you to be in a, a posture of submission, which I think is, is really, really interesting. Um, but when I see the theme, when I see the thread in the New Testament of stones, and I, and I re recall standing in this room looking at the, the, the rocks of this mountain, and about the blood that was poured out here. Like geographical, like, like here's the thing. I can't tell you where Buddha died. I, I can't tell you anything about the, the myths of Hinduism. But I can take you to these rocks. Like they're there. I've stood in this room. And so we can look in Psalms and be like, the rock that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Like, okay, like that, that's real up high in the sky up in heaven. Um, but like, no, like this happened on earth for us. And the question is, are we going to look at that sacrifice that God has done, taken it all upon himself? He, no, we didn't ask him to, but he sent his son. We didn't ask him to, but he allowed his son to be murdered as, as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so he has shown his chesed and taken it upon himself, and all he's saying is, hey, I've done it. The bill's paid. Are you going to argue with me over the check? I've already, I've already paid the thing. You, you think you could pay it, but you couldn't actually pay it, so I've already paid it, but are you now going to squabble with me over whether or not you can earn the thing that I've already paid for you? Will you just trust me? God is our salvation, and that changes how we live. We live gratefully because God is our salvation. 
And if you're saying, like, Michael, all that Jesus stuff, like, that sounds really good, or I'm familiar with that story, but I don't know how that necessarily relates to me in real life, like, I'd love to have that conversation with you. And and, and if you're a person who's, who's going into this week and saying, I don't really feel grateful, I just invite you to pause and think about the things that God has been doing in your life. That's one of the things that we do in our communion celebration as, as we're dining together. We pause. Hey, what is God doing? Tell me something that, that God's been doing. But, but let's pause together, and especially as we have time allotted this week, to not just be grateful for the, the, the physical provision that God has given to us that we all enjoy. None of us is concerned about where our dinner is going to come from this week. But the spiritual provision that was well beyond our means to be able to provide for ourselves has been paid in full and offered to us freely if we'll turn to him and trust him let's pray together God you're good You're good, and what you do is good, and what you, um, and we just get so caught up there <laughs> sometimes. Lord, would you be bringing to mind the things that you have been doing in our lives, the people that you've brought into our lives to encourage us, the people you've brought into our lives to point us towards you for the work that you have been doing in extraordinary ways and in normal ways too. And would you remind us to pause and, and, and continue to be thankful? We are people who have received so much. So would you remind us of that? And would you turn our hearts towards you? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.